All right. Well, good morning, church family. My name is Robbie. Good to be with you this morning. If you would be turning in your Bibles to John 16, we're going to be in John 16 this morning. And just to recap some of what we've learned and heard in our sermon series so far on the Holy Spirit, we've seen the inseparable connection, I hope we've seen, the inseparable connection between the Holy Spirit and our new life in union with Christ. Remember that the redemption that we have by Christ has been applied to us by the Holy Spirit. That's really important. And remember also that the very act of faith by which we lay hold of salvation, the benefits that Christ came to purchase for us, we have that very act of faith was worked in us by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit nourishes us with Christ. Remember that? He is the bread of life, and the Holy Spirit comes to provide us with that. And he satisfies us with Christ, who is the fountain of living water, by indwelling us. And so you see that the Spirit is really key to our understanding of our union with Christ and what, really what it means to be a Christian. And we've also seen, very importantly, uh, that the Spirit enables us to endure suffering and persecution, that we may bear witness to the world of the superior worth of, of Jesus. So alongside many other things that we pray that the Spirit has been working in our hearts and minds as we've um, studied him more deeply from the Gospel of John, among, alongside many other things, what we what we really hope um, is that we've seen that the Spirit has really worked in our hearts a deep and firm and fixed conviction that from top to bottom, from beginning to end, the new life we have in Christ is powered by the Holy Spirit. That's the difference between us and the world. Not mainly, not mainly good ideas or doctrines or a better way of thinking about life, but the main difference is that we have God himself. The better thing that we have in the gospel is Christ. Not, not good ideas, but a person, God himself. And so in John 16, we see the connection in the way the Holy Spirit works through us to show us and really the world the difference between God's ways and, and worldly ways, between salvation in Christ and salvation by our own efforts, things that we do to try to get God on our side, between God's wisdom and worldly wisdom, between God's judgment and worldly judgment, in short, between the way of life in the world and the way of life in the gospel. And this is important for us because this side of heaven, we are still struggling, are we not, with the process of putting to death the old person, of putting to death the old life, of figuring out life by our own wits and resources, and living more faithfully the new life we have in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so consequently, consequently, the ways and judgments of the world still often have a tug on our hearts. They still pull us in that old direction. And sometimes the pull of the old life is very strong. So we, it will be encouraging for us to see how the Spirit enables us more and more to fall out of love with the world and to show the world that the life that Jesus gives is better. That's one of the main works of the Spirit. So a question I have for us is the only question that I have in that bulletin there, but it's a good one to ponder and maybe ponder it as we go through John 16 this morning. But the question is, what does a successful life look like? How does your view of a successful life differ from your view when you were not a Christian? And as you ponder that, here also this key truth, maybe a, a quick way to sum up John 16, one way anyway. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to his people so that through us the world may see him. Well, let's see it from the text. John 16 starting in verse 1. Jesus says, I have said these things to you 
to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. We'll pause there for, for a minute. One, one of the elements of persecution that's hinted at in this text, but I think sometimes we forget, but that the disciples faced very quickly the reality of it, one of the elements of persecution is that it is persecution by the respectable elements of society. In the disciples' day, the respectable elements of society was the religious establishment. The very people who most loudly proclaimed their allegiance to the Lord were the people who would put the disciples out of the synagogues and the temple. In fact, they would go so far as to kill some of them, and all the while thinking that they were offering service to God. So, imagine if we were the disciples in that situation. Imagine the temptation to give up on Jesus and his call to discipleship, if this is the kind of opposition that we are going to experience. The opposition that comes not from the people who, at least to our worldly way of thinking, are so obviously evil, but the religious establishment, the people who hold the respect in society, the people who kind of set the standards for civility and what that looks like, and even what it means to follow the Lord. So Jesus very clearly tells his disciples what to expect. I mean, after all, who would want to go against that? Who would want to stand in the face of the respectable religious establishment, people who set the tone for society and say, you don't know the Lord. You don't know the Father. You don't know the Son. Who would want to go against that? So Jesus very clearly tells his disciples what to expect so that when that persecution comes, they will remember his words and stand firm. Though it may seem that all the best of the world is against them. While he was with them, of course, Jesus didn't necessarily need to say this. Opposition to Jesus was pretty clearly opposition to Jesus because he was right there. It was opposition to his person and to his words. But once he goes to the Father, it's not so obvious, at least to our sight and senses. And so Jesus tells them what to expect. Jesus wants us to know this truth. Opposition to Jesus is still opposition to Jesus. However dressed up it is in respectable language, in civility, in the language of the establishment. We are called to stand firm. However, against the wisdom of the world, we must do so. But how are we to do it? How are we to do it? If the best of this world do not know God with all of their wisdom and with all of their might, and even in their deception think that they can serve God while opposing him, how are we to know how to serve God? How, do, how are we to have the resources to be faithful servants? And doesn't it reveal something very important that I think sometimes we can also miss? Suffering and persecution really show us the emptiness of the world, doesn't it? And our desperate need of a helper. 
to stand firm and to know the Lord and to be faithful in the call of discipleship. And that is why the promise of the Holy Spirit is so sweet and so encouraging. That is why it has been to the advantage of all Christians everywhere and at all times that Jesus has indeed ascended to the Father, that he really does stand, sit at his right hand, and he really has sent the Spirit to help us, to know him, to stand firm in him, to be nourished by him, and to know the way in which he calls us. So, in short, the Spirit upholds us in Christ. He helps us to stake everything upon Christ, and he helps us to witness to the world of the gospel, of what we have in Christ. So how does he do this? Our text says that he convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So we'll talk about these for a minute. He says of sin. He sh- the Spirit shows the world that the center of sin is not failing to live up to an arbitrary moral law code that's just somehow out there for some reason or another. It's not merely failing to live up to our personal best. It's not failing to be successful, however you define success. It's not losing out on the best in life or failing to make a difference or whatever else the world calls failure. Sin is unbelief in Jesus. The Spirit's work is to show the world that through the lives of God's people uh, that Jesus is the ultimate concern in the world and that it is sin, treason of the highest order, to reject him. Uh, When we think of it this way, when we see someone begin to think or act too highly of himself, We sometimes say, well, you know, the world doesn't revolve around you. (laughs) The Spirit's work is to show us that, in fact, the world revolves around Christ. And that's one of the reasons why it's so shocking and disturbing sometimes and just plain old sinful and prideful to make ourselves the center of the story, make ourselves the center of the universe, because we're not. Christ is. And the Spirit's work is to show that Christ is the center of the universe, the center of our lives, the center of all that God has been doing in the world from the very beginning and promises to do to the very end. And that is what makes sin, sin. Is that it's a, it's a, a preferment of things other than Christ. A worshiping, a worshiping, worshiping things other than, than Christ. And so we see also, the Spirit helps us to recognize that the sting of sin has been decisively dealt with in Christ, in the gospel. It's what makes the gospel the gospel. Not just something that helps us to have a better week this week but to know God, to be reconciled to God in Christ. Do we know this? Do we live like we know this? It's one of the ways the Spirit convicts the world of sin. The Spirit also convicts the world of righteousness. Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the Father was the ultimate vindication of his life. It was the answer to all who would question the purity of Jesus. Behold, he goes to the Father. It was the answer to all who had questioned the claims he made about himself. Behold, he goes to the Father. It was the answer to all who would doubt his promises. Behold, he goes to the Father. The Spirit shows the world that Jesus is the true standard of righteousness. And I think this should remind us of two things we've often heard, not just in this sermon series, but really in many different sermon series. And that is, nothing is neutral. And we are always witnessing to the world by the way that we live. You you see, the world has definite ideas about righteousness, doesn't it? It's not like outside of Christ, people just are willing to admit that they're going to live like out and out selfish lives most of the time. The world has definite ideas about a righteous life. The world has definite ideas about a successful life. And we shared in those ideas before we knew Christ. And still, even now, sometimes when we read our Bibles and we're just 
come up right against something the Lord requires of us, and it just rubs us the wrong way. We, we see in our own hearts that we have definite ideas about righteousness for ourselves or good things for ourselves. And yet, the, the rub is that Jesus calls us to a better way of making him the Lord of our lives, of recognizing his is the standard of righteousness, of seeing in his life the acceptable life that God requires of us all. So do we find ourselves merely going along day to day with the worldly way of thinking, of the way in which we used to think when we made ourselves the center of the story? Or do we think through our lives, how is this affecting my discipleship? How is this affecting my ability to witness to the world of who Jesus is and the, the grace and peace that can be mine if I receive him? Do we think through our lives what it means to be obedient to Jesus? It's one of the ways in which the, the Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. I said this before in the hospitality class, but it's been kind of with me for a while. I saw a video of a man who's sort of this self-help guru, I guess you would call him. Um, and he talked about how for many years he struggled with just anxiety about what other people thought about him. He just couldn't get out of his mind in every interaction. How did I come across? Was I weird? Was that awkward? And it was just driving him insane. And he recognized that he had to do something about it. And so he thought to himself, well, if I'm focusing too much on what other people think about me, the solution must be to train myself not to care about what they think about me. And he's going around preaching this message. And a lot of people are resonating with it. But when we think about that, that's not what the Lord calls us to. He calls us many times to count others more significant than ourselves. Not to train ourselves not to care what they think, but to do all we can to love them well. To put our needs, just as Jesus didn't hold equality with God a thing to be grasped, but freely emptied himself to draw us in him, to follow in that example, and to put our needs subordinate to theirs. That's not a world, that's not a thing that would just occur to someone who didn't have the Lord. And it's not a thing that naturally occurs to us. We, we still feel that tug and pull. But that's what I'm talking about. The world has different standards of righteousness from what the Lord calls us to. And we feel that, don't we? So we need the Spirit. We need the Spirit to help us recognize the Lord is good. And even when we, we feel that tug, and we, and we feel that, man, this is really difficult, and I'm not sure if I can do this, we have a helper. We have a helper who not only helps us to know that what Jesus has communicated to us is good, and that he will help us to be obedient, and that we can fail every day, and it doesn't mean the Lord doesn't love us, but that he draws us again, he helps us to stand up again and run back to the throne of grace, and he helps us in that to show the world that there's something different, there's something better in the gospel. That's one of the ways in which the Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. The Spirit also convicts the world of judgment. The Spirit shows that the ruler of this world is judged. That is, he shows the world the emptiness of its pretensions. There are a thousand ideas, more than a thousand ideas, about how to live in this world. Many philosophies extol great virtues. If you've been reading, as I hope many of you have been reading in Calvin's little book on the Christian life, one of the things he talks about is, is uh, particularly his meditations on, on the future life. That you can read the philosophers, and many of them have wonderful things to say. They extol great virtues, and they provide lots of motivation to do it. But notice this, they never rise above themselves. Never. They never say the motivation and the goal of the Christian life is to set our minds on Christ, to set our minds on things above where Christ is, and to put off the old self. At the end of the day, it always goes back to us as the orbit and center of our lives. The greatest philosophers, the wisest people who live apart from Christ, never rose above themselves. In another place, I remember reading in seminary, 
for one of my history classes about how Calvin had to respond to a letter that was sent by the, one of the bishops of Rome to the citizens of Geneva after Calvin had been kicked out of Geneva uh, for about a two-year stint. And, and he heard that Calvin had been kicked out, and he thought, well, this is a good opportunity to draw these people back to the Roman fold. And so he sent them a letter, and the beginning of the letter begins with this long exhortation to think about the future life, to think about heaven. And he closes it by saying, after you've done all this great meditation on heaven, don't you want to be sure that you can really have it? And the way to be sure that you can really have it is to go back to Mother Rome, the, the church that has always been there, and you don't want to risk, you don't want to gamble the, your heavenly future on this new reformed fad that's going to pass. It's just, that's just too messy, it's too dangerous. And so you, you start in Calvin's response, and at the very beginning, I think everyone, me included in my class, thought, all right, well, here's how Calvin's going to do it. He's going to show them you're, you're nuts, this is just crazy. We have the better ideas, and it's really going to assure us that we're going to get to, to get to heaven. That's not how Calvin responds to him. He says, first of all, it's bad theology to set our minds so much on ourselves and not set before us as the prime motive of our existence, zeal to illustrate the glory of God. And when I read that, I was just bowled over because it reminded me, wow, my, my center, even when I'm thinking good thoughts, so to speak. Even when I'm thinking about heaven, my center can so much be myself and not the Lord. Not all that I, not, not all that I have in him. And so one of the ways the Spirit helps us is to reorient the way that we think, which is so naturally self-centered and help us to recognize that Christ is all and in all. And so the Spirit convicts the world of the emptiness of its pretensions. He shows that the ruler of this world is truly judged. But often we need to know this because sometimes it doesn't look that way. Be as successful as you like. Be as happy as you like. Get as much happiness as you like. Make a name for yourself if you can. But without Christ, it is ultimately vain. Christ has been seated at God's right hand, and he has been given the nations as his inheritance. His word alone matters. So does the world see this in the way that we live? Who do we most listen to? What tugs at us? What makes us excited to wake up in the morning and be all that we can be? What makes us anxious? Does the world see that we know and have a firm conviction that the ruler of this world is judged? This is what the Spirit helps us to do, to know and to have a firm assurance of the truth of the gospel despite the opposition of the world, despite the opposition of the world's best and most respectable, and to witness to its reality in our lives. Another story I was pondering this week is of a Christian man who is facing persecution in China, and he was taken to prison because of his faith. And he said that after a while, it wasn't the beatings that made him sad. It wasn't being stripped naked and being robbed of his dignity that made him anxious. It was sitting in the prison cell and suddenly being confronted with the reality that he might be there for 40 or more years and thinking about all that he might miss out on in life. He wanted to be married, maybe, and have kids and celebrate birthdays and celebrate New Year's and Christmas and all the good things in life, or even just have a good, warm meal with friends. And he began to think, that's no longer going to be my future. I might be in this cell for 40 years, and that's all my existence is going to be. And then the Spirit, as he does, because this is what Jesus has promised, came and comforted him and reminded him, this life is not all there is. The ruler of this world is judged. And it reminded him, too, of, uh, in the way the Spirit often works, it convicted him. It showed him that he still was in love in many respects for this world. And I know I'm the first to admit that. That's me 
all the way down. I don't even have to be first to do it very hard. The shower just has to be cold. <laughs> and, and, and I can, you know, begin to not remember that the ruler of this world is judged, that, that, uh, that this world is not all that there is. And so what a good thing it is, though, that we have the Spirit who, who reminds us that this world is not all that there is. The ruler of this world is judged. And so are we living this? Are we being drawn again and again to the Bible and to God's Word and to prayer? Are we really focusing on these things to help us to witness to that reality in our lives so that our neighbors see it and, and know it? G. Campbell Morgan, he was, uh, he was actually the pastor to um, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones before Martin Lloyd-Jones became a pastor. He has this good quote. He says, When on that Easter morning long ago, God Almighty raised Jesus from the dead, Selecting him from the dead, selecting him from among others, choosing him and making him the approach to himself. What was he doing? He was saying in the sight of all the race, this is the man, the anointed man. This is the man I accept. The resurrection of Jesus was the evidence in human history of the type, the pattern, which God accepts. The resurrection of Jesus was the proclamation to men everywhere that it is only as men are like him that they can hope to rise as he rose and descend as he ascended. The fact of the cross and the resurrection of Christ is God's verdict against sin. And what a good thing it is then that we can be united to Christ, that we have been united to Christ, and the Spirit works that conviction more and more into our hearts so that we live its reality in our lives. We demonstrate to the world the emptiness of its pretensions, that we recognize the ruler of this world is judged. And the only way to be sure that we will experience the new life to come is to have Jesus in us, to, be, to have his righteousness imputed to us by the Holy Spirit. So let's turn again to the text and pick up in verse 12. Jesus continues and says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has, has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Well, we see also that we need to have this firm conviction worked in our hearts and minds, but yet it's not up to us ultimately to do it. Yes, indeed, the, the Helper would come and help his disciples to stand firm in the face of persecution. Yes, indeed, he will come and help us to demonstrate to the world the emptiness of its pretensions. Yes, indeed, he will help us to demonstrate and to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And yet, it's not on us, ultimately, to work this conviction in our hearts. That, that's good news, too. This, the Helper comes and helps us to do these things. See it in verse 13. Jesus teaches us that the Spirit is our assurance that the words of the Bible are true. Against all those who would question the validity, of the, the validity of the message of the disciples, against all those who would scoff at the upside-down nature of God's kingdom because it doesn't line up with worldly values, against all those who hate the truth, God has designed that our full assurance of his word comes through the testimony of the Spirit who convicts us of this truth. The Spirit will guide us into all truth. And one of the ways in which he does this, of course, is that through the disciples and reminding them of the significance of what Jesus had done, of reminding them of what all that they, all that he had said to them, and that their and their faithfulness in communicating that to us through what they wrote, that we know that what Jesus said is true and for us. That's one of the ways in which he works that. 
And so we have this word from the Lord, and it teaches us about a different way of life, against all the intuitions we have about life, against all the things that we just naturally think are good for us and we can just do on our own. We, we come against this word, and we find oftentimes it challenges us. It convicts us. It confronts us in many different ways. And if we didn't have a firm conviction that ultimately this was from the Lord, well, why would we do that? How would we, how would we stand firm? And yet we can have a firm conviction that this really is from the Lord, that what he has communicated to us about sin, about righteousness, about judgment, really is from him, and that it's worth staking our lives upon. It's worth doing everything we can to help others to know the truth of it. See, also in verses 14 and 15, Jesus teaches us that the Spirit gives us all that belongs to Christ because the Father has given it to him. So our full assurance that we really belong to God and that we are inheritors of all the promises of Christ comes to us through the Holy Spirit. Hear the way that J.C. Ryle puts it in this good quote. He says, Whatever we need to know for our present peace and sanctification, the Holy Spirit is ready to teach us. Into all the truth that is really profitable and that our minds can comprehend and bear, the Holy Spirit is ready and willing to guide us. Then let us never forget in reading the Bible to pray for the teaching of the Holy Spirit. We must not wonder if we find the Bible a dark and difficult book. If we do not regu regularly seek light from him by whom it was first inspired, in this, as in many other things, we have not because we ask not. I know that convicts me pretty sharply. Many times I do find the Bible a dark and difficult book. I mean, doesn't that describe it pretty well? Dark when you find that it rubs you the wrong way and it demands things of you and attitudes of you that you just don't think you have within yourself and a difficult one because sometimes you're not even sure what it means. And yet, how often do I go into self-centered mode again and think, well, the, the deal then is to be as smart as I can, to be as clever as I can, to try to figure this out on myself, on my own, uh, my own, with my own resources rather than go into the spirit and saying, Lord, teach me. Renew a right spirit within me. Search me. Help me to understand this. Help me to live it out. And oftentimes, I found this, I'm sure you have too, that the roadblock to my understanding wasn't intellectual. It was a heart matter. It was ethical. I didn't want to obey. And that put blinders on my eyes. I, I found myself making all sorts of excuses about why this particular text didn't mean what it pretty clearly means. Or why this is more difficult, or why I ought to have a bad view about God because he commands this, or something or other like that. Oftentimes, it's not intellectual, it's ethical. And so I need the Spirit to convict me, to work a right spirit within me, to help me to see that following Jesus, sometimes as difficult and as winding as, and narrow as the road sometimes get, is worth it, because he'll be with me. It's one of the ways, again, the world convicts the, or the Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, to show us that Though the demands of God are sometimes difficult, that they're worth it, that knowing Jesus really is worth it. So how often are we going to the Spirit and praying for help, for illumination, to help us to know and to understand and to believe and to obey? We ought to do that often. So, what does John 16, 1 through 15 teach us? At least three things, or two things, really. Jesus has sent us the Holy Spirit, and he confirms the gospel in our hearts and lives. He confirms the gospel in our hearts and lives against the persecution of the religious establishment against the persecution of the respectable elements of society who think that they have life figured out and sometimes can be pretty successful with it. He convicts the world of sin and righteousness of judgment. He confirms the gospel in our hearts and lives. And the purpose of this is so that the world will see Christ in us 
The world will see Christ in us. Are we being renewed day by day so that more and more of Jesus comes through in the way that we live, the way that we think about life? Remember, nothing is neutral, and we're always witnessing in the way that we live. So what a good encouragement it is. What a good thing it is to, to remember, to see what the Lord has done for us in the gospel, to renew our hearts and minds, to help us to stand firm sometimes against all the supposed wisdom of the world, to know that the ruler of this world is judged, and to demonstrate it in the way that we live, so that others will see there is joy in knowing the Lord. There is joy in following him. There is life everlasting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we not forget how good it is that we know you and that we have you in us, indwelling in us, to enable us to stand firm, sometimes against persecution, Lord, sometimes against just the distractions of our own flesh and the pull of the old nature, the tug of worldly enticements, to really know that you love us and that you've called us to a better way and that you are daily renewing our hearts and minds and true obedience so that the world will see in us Christ. Lord, help us to be faithful in us in this. Help us to constantly go back to you, to go back to the fountain, the bread of life, the fountain of living water, to know and believe that you are with us, that you are working in us to show the world the beauty of the gospel, that there is salvation in your name alone. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.